Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of times podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on March 20th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. My guests are two excellent public health and health law experts. First and well known to the Twill listener is Wendy Mariner, the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health, Professor in the Center of Health Law, Ethics and Human Rights, Professor in the Department of Health Law, Policy and Management, and Director of the JD. MPH dual degree program at Boston University School of Public Health, professor of law at Boston University School of Law and professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. Welcome back, Wendy. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be back with you. With us is Michael Ulrich, a professor of health law, ethics and human rights at the Boston University School of Public Health. His scholarship focuses on the intersection of public health, constitutional law, bioethics and social justice, with an emphasis on the role of law in the health outcomes of vulnerable and underserved populations. Previously, he was a senior fellow in health law and lecturer in law at Yale Law School and a bioethicist in the division of AIDS at the NIH. Mike, at long last, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So as we're talking today, there are signs, always assuming accurate data reporting, that the numbers of COVID-19 cases and deaths in China are zeroing out while those in Europe and the US are spiking. Um, To give you a little more timeline context, since things are moving so fast, as we're recording this, the Senate is negotiating the third bill, the trillion dollar bailout bill. And yesterday, California Governor Newsom issued a statewide stay at home order. Um, Most of the more recent and more restrictive policies coming out of both state and federal governments seem to have been influenced by the UK Imperial College modeling that examined the impact of different levels of non-pharmaceutical interventions, MPIs, such as social distancing. Layered on that and of relevance to our discussion about healthcare uh, is a study by Tsai and colleagues um, uh, that was published this week, estimating demand projections for hospital beds, uh, quote, if the inflection curve is not flattened and the pandemic is concentrated in a six-month period, that would leave a capacity gap of 1.3 million inpatient beds, 274% of potentially available, and 295,000 and change ICU beds, 508% of uh, potentially available capacity. In this show, we're going to concentrate on two aspects of the crisis. Uh, One, where the healthcare system is as far as capacity and resources, and what we think about the impact of new federal legislation and what else is needed. And secondly, what is the legal valence, if any, of terms such as shelter in place or quarantine, and how we will be calibrating sort of these and other perhaps more serious infringements on liberty, such as lockdowns and so on, going forward. So let's start with the healthcare uh, system uh, and where it is. And What are your reflections on on where we are at the moment? Well, I think it's important to remember why we are where we are. And I think there are at least three elements. One is the fact that we're dealing with a virus that can be transmitted person to person before anyone has symptoms. So we're all walking around not knowing whether or not we might be infected. Secondly, the lack of recognition at the federal level that something needed to be done, that this was not um, 
just like the seasonal flu. And third, the lack of uh, testing equipment and lab capacity to process tests that made it impossible to know who was infected and therefore where and how the virus was spreading in the country. That simply puts us in a more difficult position of needing the kind of social distancing that is taking place. And it's compounded, of course, by the difficulty with uh, healthcare providers who don't have enough supplies, personal protective equipment, gowns, masks, um, etc. So we are uh, behind the eight ball, as has been said. Uh, I would also add that I think part of the issue that we have had is the inconsistency with um, the information that's being given to the public. And so when you have certain uh, officials and politicians, mostly state and local, saying this is a problem, this is a crisis, we need to get it under control, but then you have the administration for extended periods saying this is not a problem, don't worry about it. It makes it more difficult for the public, which includes the healthcare system, to figure out what, what should we be doing. And so um, when you're not prepared with things like testing to be able to really focus on those who are positive, you have inconsistency in some people going and saying, you know, I have a fever or a cold and I don't want to sh- make sure um, that I'm being treated and other people who are not going and seeking out help. And so that makes it more difficult to figure out, you know, where those resources should be focused. What about our usual sort of structural problems? Um, I mean, around 30 million people in the US do not have health insurance. Um, We're talking about emergency department services for people, which is a consistent and awful source these days of surprise bills. Um, There is finally sort of announcements that testing will be free of co-pays and so on. Um, But what happens if you test positive? What about the treatment that follows? Will that be free? Um, And are we, have we yet had a sort of special enrollment period without documentation for Medicaid, like uh, President Bush's waiver after Katrina? Well, your points are, are, are well taken because this crisis simply lays bare uh, all the cracks in our healthcare system and our healthcare financing system. Uh, and we are at a, a rather unusual time in which we need people to get access to care, people who largely can't afford it. And at the same time, uh, the government is seeking to uh, get rid of the entire Affordable Care Act and therefore the coverage by insurance of people who uh, who would not have access to care otherwise. Uh, Medicaid expansions uh, are being held, uh, held up or at least stalled for the time being while the uh, HHS is issuing guidances to encourage additional requirements for Medicaid eligibility. Uh, the Department of Agriculture is uh, seeking to eliminate more people from uh, food stamp rolls. <clears throat> so we're, the government is sort of acting inconsistently by seeking to help people on the one hand with the new bills that are being discussed and that has been passed, <clears throat> as well as on the other hand, undermining the infrastructure that would enable them to get care. 
I think also your your question about treatment really um, highlights the the way that we're sort of viewing this. There's now recognition that getting people tested and finding out who is uh, indeed infected and who is not is critical to um, you know getting a handle on this outbreak. But at the same time, what happens when these people are positive and need to get treatment? There seems to be a lot more reluctance in helping with that. And so, you know, if something isn't done about that, then you're talking about potentially another crisis afterwards where you have people that are uninsured or even people that are underinsured um, having lots of issues uh, with how to cope with the bills that are coming out of this. I mean, you saw a little bit early on with um, there was a story in The New York Times about a father and daughter who were quarantined um, and then they weren't positive. They go home and they start getting thousands of dollars of bills um, in the quarantine. And so this is something, especially for, I think, the underinsured, which isn't really being talked about very much because you have people who think they have insurance and think, okay, you know, I'm good, you know, I'm safe. But if they have high deductible plans or high co payments and co insurance, things like that, they could uh, have a lot of trouble afterwards. There's a certain irony, isn't there, that as we ask the government to get healthcare to people and in places either at the federal level or state level, they actually start to respond to those questions or requests and deal with the risks that are in place. The kinds of things that come up for discussion are the things that we as healthcare advocates have been asking for for years right? Immediately, you have to go to no out-of-pocket. Immediately, you need to go to pre-authorization, in this case, for testing. You need to actually make telehealth work. You need, in this case, a national disaster medical system appropriation for testing the uninsured, but you need for the health of the herd. You need for everyone to be tested and everyone to be treated. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, it, we've been asking or advocating for these kinds of measures for many years. And I was somewhat encouraged with the um, enthusiasm among many legislatures to get these kinds of things in place. The difficulty seems to be that they are reserved just for the emergency and the provisions, for example, in the Families First Act and in the new um, uh, provisions for uh, assistance to uh, to people for sick leave and the like, which we've been advocating for a long time, uh, are, are a bit limited and particularly supposed to end with the crisis. That's not the point. Um, as we all know, what you need is a resilient population. And to achieve that, you need to have a solid both healthcare structure and public health system so that people will immediately be able to access the care they need and avoid uh, facing this kind of crisis. Yeah, I I, uh, I think that is, you know, one of the bigger questions is what is this going to mean long term in terms of the healthcare system and the way that we think about public health? Um, I've taught classes the last two days online, and, and that's what the students really are curious about and asking, you know, are these going to be long term changes? Is there going to be a shift in the way that politicians think about and discuss public health and public health infrastructure? 
or is this going to be simply you know a temporary uh, way of taking care of it now to handle this particular crisis and then once it's over and once we're through then get back to sort of the way things were and so trying to figure out uh, as you know advocates how to both handle the current situation while at the same time using it as a way to try and advocate for bigger structural changes uh, is, is sort of a tough balance that I think we're all trying to, to fight. I mean, to an extent, I, I, I feel that we shouldn't uh, uh, ever let a, a good disaster go to waste. Um, I mean, what essentially we're seeing develop here is sort of the best argument for major healthcare reform and for a far larger piece of the pie to going to public health. It also sort of almost deliciously exposes um, uh, defects that we've seen um, uh, even post-ACA that have not been fixed or have even been made worse by the Trump administration. Um, I mean, uh, there's a great health affairs uh, blog post by Erica Turret and, and, and some of our good friends, um, you know, arguing for what else do we need now? And one of the, the paragraphs was we need coverage for treatment for these junk or skinny plans that the Trump administration has been promoting, which at the moment under the impact of families first coronavirus Response Act, they're actually labeled as uninsured plans. And obviously, also, we also uh, need uh, something to deal with surprise billing. Generally, in their article, those authors noted that the special Medicaid enrollment under that act only applies to testing, not treatment. And they also argued that we should revisit the 100% FMAP for states that have yet to expand Medicaid. We may very well face uh, uh, the need for this, particularly if the, uh, the spread of the coronavirus uh, goes on for many, many months, because we could be heading into a serious economic dislocation. Uh, everyone's talking about recession. People who look farther ahead talk about depression. At that point, it's it's really not going to be a question of whether you get your co-pays paid, but whether there is any likelihood that you have an income. Um, and that's a bigger, harder question, but it may in fact, as you say, Nick, expose uh, the huge uh, chasm in uh, in our healthcare system because we can't leave people completely on their own when the economy is in the ditch. Uh, we may very well have to rethink. Uh, our entire social benefit structure, as we did after the, the great after the Great Depression, which produced Social Security. Yeah, I think that uh, this has also highlighted some other issues with the the administration and sort of some of their their primary goals. Um, I think also the the public charge for healthcare is is not being enforced at the moment, um, which is another interesting uh, change. And then really, just I, I think one of the other things that hopefully comes from this is this the the impossibility of this isolationism that the administration really ran on this America first you know shut down borders close ourselves off from the rest of the world it just doesn't work and I think public health really does you know uh, show that whether you like it or not we are sort of all interconnected and these things that happen in other countries can have an impact on us and so it'll be interesting to see if 
they try to use this as a, another way to encourage sort of even stronger borders, or if it helps the public understand better just sort of how fruitless that effort really is. And obviously not just the public charge issue, Mike, but also um, the question of healthcare for the undocumented. Um, when we have huge uh, millions of people who don't have any healthcare or are scared to go to a healthcare entity with their born in America children uh, because of the possible uh, immigration uh, enforcement. Um, that leaves a, a huge swathe of, of people um, who, who are no less asymptomatic transmitters than um, anybody else. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um Again, now that we're in an environment where we're trying to encourage people to go and engage with the healthcare system and get tested, you start to see the problem with a lot of these policies that clearly do the exact opposite and discourage people from seeking out care, seeking out help, and doing what is important and necessary for them to actually be healthy. It's also a, a good time to remind our policymakers that this will happen again. It's happened uh, over and over again, and it's hard to know whether it will be two years or, t or five years or 10 years, but it will happen again, and we don't want to be in this position. So we need to be putting in place the kind of infrastructure that enables everyone to get care in and to get tested and to ensure that they are not in a position to get infected or to infect anyone else. What else do you think should be in the, you know, the trillion dollar aid package? Um, at the moment, it just seems to be money for hospitals and health centers. Um, okay. Health insurers would need to cover coronavirus vaccines, but well, that's a year out. And of course, more telehealth, more telehealth, more telehealth. Um, are those the sorts of things that are what we need at the moment? Or is it better to look at what some of the states are doing with sort of their own emergency declarations, um, permitting early prescription refills, wearing, uh, waiving or cost sharing, um, introducing to go more into the social sphere, Wendy, that you were alluding to, um, mandatory sick leave policies and so on? Well, the, uh, the funds can be made available to, to buy uh, treatments and equipment as necessary. I think there are some <clears throat> disagreements between governors and the federal government at the moment as to how quickly these funds are being distributed and to uh, when whether the stockpile can be used. We've heard from, um, the, I believe, Steve Mnuchin that the f federal government is really not responsible for providing the supplies, but indeed it has that ability. Uh, our own governor in Massachusetts, Charlie Baker, is concerned feeling that the federal government outbid the state in in getting access to various testing equipment and supplies for lab analysis and the like. So I think governors and certainly healthcare workers, healthcare providers are begging for this kind of um, this kind of equipment and supplies so that they can both test patients and be protected when doing so. Yeah, and so with that, you know, with the obviously getting them more protective equipment for uh, getting healthcare workers more protective equipment would be uh, useful. I, I think one of the other things that I thought was a good suggestion in that health affairs uh, blog piece was the idea of establishing a, a fund for healthcare workers similar to 
what was established for first responders after 9-11. Um, you know, right now, we don't have enough protective equipment for them, and yet still so many are going uh, in every day constantly and working around the clock to do what they can. And so recognizing that sacrifice, uh, I think it would be extremely useful to set up some sort of fund for them as well. I think a fund after the fact is a lovely idea, but what we need is equipment now. Uh, let's move on to our second topic, the sort of the laws surrounding the limitations that we're facing on our own sort of personal freedoms at the moment. Uh, the CDC has issued guidances uh, to, you know, cancelling or postpone in-person events that consist of more than 50 people, lots of recommendations with regard to guidelines for protecting vulnerable populations, hand hygiene, social distancing, and so on. We're seeing a lot of state action here, though, of course, as always, there's so much uh, differentiation between different state actions and it all seems kind of uh, uh, confusing. Um, but we have prohibitions in some states or advisories, both as to crowds, the shuttering of dine-in restaurants, bars, and uh, staggering, given how uh, uh, governments pay for some things, uh, even casinos. Um, and as I said at the top of the show, mimicking Italy and Spain, uh, California has now issued a statewide stay-at-home order. And of course, we're well familiar with school and university closures and so on. Could we start experts with some definitions and an understanding perhaps of, of whether these different labels I'm going to give you have legal valence or distinct legal valence. So uh, just some of the phrases that we see, um, social distancing, shelter in place, lockdown, quarantine, isolation. Are those legal terms? The short answer is no, <laughs> especially for social distancing sheltering in place and lockdown. Uh, quarantine and isolation, as you well know, uh, do have their own uh, definitions and distinctions, although in practice, uh, quarantine is usually used as a generic term for any involuntary or voluntary uh, confinement or staying home. So it's unfortunate um, that there is this, this amount of confusion in terminology, although I do think that social distancing and shelter in place, while not legal terms, do convey uh, a, a difference with social distancing meaning the purpose is to keep sufficiently away from other people to avoid transmitting the disease. Shelter in place means please don't go out. <laughs> but they require, that requires that government and perhaps private entities make it possible for you to stay home. I know that, uh, that Mike has a lot of ideas about this and about quarantine and isolation, so I'll let him speak to that. Yeah, so I, I think um, with all of these various terms, the the you know, as any good lawyer knows, the devil is in the details. Um, I, I saw the headlines about the seven counties in the Bay Area being on lockdown and, you know, people were going to be banned from going outside. And when I actually looked at one of the county's guidelines, you see that there are a lot of exemptions built in, including um, things like outdoor activity, which include walking and um, running and biking and things like that. And so um, legally, those terms don't matter as much as what the actual uh, orders are 
but I do think they have some relevance to the public. Um, I got a lot of students asking about, you know, what does this mean? Is this constitutional? Can they lock us in? Is Massachusetts going to go on lockdown? Um, and then a lot of the journalists also are, are typically very curious about, you know, can you go on lockdown? Can you, um, you know, just sort of ban people from going outside? And so I think things like that can have uh, a pretty significant impact impact on the way that people start to feel and think and have an impact on really, you know, people's mental health and stress outside of just worrying about contracting the virus um, itself. Yeah, that's right. The um, the governor of California has now said everyone should shelter in place throughout the state. But if you look at the details, can you walk your dog? Of course you can walk your dog. The dog needs to be walked. Uh, can you go get groceries if you need them? Yes. Can you go to the pharmacy if you need your medicines right away? Yes. So there are lots of, uh, of variations that are, as Mike says, specific to any any particular order. To give some context to this, there's um, uh, there was a story of a patient in Nelson County, Kentucky, um, who refused to self-isolate, I guess after a positive um, uh, test, um, who has been forced into home isolation. And it, it brings to memory the um, uh, the uh, the Ebola nurse, right, who uh, in, went home to Maine and had a, a, a cop car parked outside her house. Um, in the UK, there's new legislation giving the police, public health and immigration officers uh, powers to detain people suspected of having COVID-19 and exact £1,000 fines for refusing tests under new emergency powers. In Italy, uh, 47,000 people were fined in one week for going out without good reason. Um, now, the two of you uh, have written, a, wrote a, a great uh, law review article published in 2018, uh, Legal Challenges to Quarantine Restrictions on Size of Meetings. And it would be great to just get a, a sketch of um, of just how far state and federal uh, governments can go with regard to these kinds of sort of uh, uh, liberty questions. So... Um States obviously have very broad police powers, um, and so their ability to, um, you know, quarantine, to isolate people that are infected, um, you know, is can be quite uh, broad. I think the one thing that Wendy and I have really tried to emphasize, and we tried to emphasize in that um, law review article that you referenced, is it's always important to keep in mind the difference between what can be done legally and what should be done in terms of maintaining public trust and cooperation. Um, you know, mass fines for what's deemed to be unnecessarily going outside, as you talked about in Italy, you know, who gets to decide what is necessary and what's not, right? Walking your dog, I would say, is necessary. Um, and so being able to isolate people by force if they are um, infected is something that can be done and, and has been done before. But you want to give people the opportunity as much as possible to do it on their own to sort of engender um, that trust and cooperation. And, and this idea that, you know, it's a partnership. The government has a role to play, but clearly the public has a role to play as well. 
well, and it's not just um, relying on the government to, by force, pick out and deem who the unhealthy people are and who uh, and and protect the healthy people from them. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Uh, and as a practical matter, uh, we don't have enough law enforcement personnel to lock down an entire city or state or country, uh, and it, it so it doesn't make a lot of sense. What therefore we really need to do is to make it possible for people to comply with reasonable public health recommendations. So you need two things, as we've argued. One, you need to have a source of credible information based on science uh, that the public can trust and believe in, because without that, you will undoubtedly get resistance. People may decide, I don't believe what the government is telling me. And certainly there's a good segment of the population today who doesn't necessarily believe what the government is telling them. So that's that's a problem. The second thing you need, assuming you have good, credible scientific information, uh, are ways to make it possible for people to comply with good recommendations. And that's where we get back into financial protections that makes it possible for people to stay home, to make take care of their kids if schools are closed. You need health care coverage, which we've spoken about, and you need the kind of community and social services available to uh, allow people to, to stay home if they need to. Provision of food delivery, provision of medicines, um, all sorts of things. But it all depends on making it possible because we simply can't uh, bring out the army in this country and lock people down. Besides, a lot of the country is pretty well armed. Yeah, so I just want to make a comment, a quick comment to, to Wendy's uh, first point about transparency. Uh, as we, you know, we have the individual uh, in Kentucky, but there was also um, the father and daughter in St. Louis, I think, who went to the school dance after um, one of the, a different daughter was confirmed to be t- uh, tested positive. Um, you know, this is part of the issue that we've had, I think, you know, especially before this week was inconsistency in messaging. While you have some public health officials and some governors saying this is a serious problem and one that needs to be taken seriously, you know, you had the administration standing up there and saying, this isn't a big deal. This isn't really much different than the flu, this will be gone in no time. And that creates an environment where people think, okay, they say I should stay at home, but do I really need to, right, if this is similar to the flu? And so to to have that inconsistency coming, especially from government officials, and then to use coercive force because people aren't doing what we think is right in terms of public health, I think creates a lot of problems. What about limitations on travel? So there's been an announcement by the administration that that Americans should either come home now or shelter in place where they are. And there's a State Department level four do not travel advisory. Can Americans who decide to come home later be denied entry into the United States? And what about limitations on travel within the United States? Um, Can the federal government stop interstate travel, for example? This is a larger discussion, but certainly the federal government has has uh, substantial authority at the border. And it certainly has authority to prevent the entry of people or goods that could introduce a dangerous contagious disease, particularly one that's listed in a presidential executive order, such as Ebola and SARS, and now 
of the coronavirus. This is what happened with respect to the cruise ships, uh, where people were up, placed into quarantine in federal facilities, um, the military bases. And you could understand that in a, in a crisis. Now, whether or not they needed to be quarantined is a separate question because not everyone was tested. So there, we didn't know whether anyone was in fact uh, infected and therefore was w- would be wise to be placed into quarantine for the time being. If, again, here we go, if we had the test, we would know whether anyone was in fact infected. And we'd also have to know whether they would be able to take precautions, take care of themselves and avoid other people and obviate the need for any kind of quarantine confinement that was involuntary. Yeah. So as Wendy said, um, the, the federal government certainly has authority uh, when it comes from international into U.S. borders uh, and between states. But again, um, as she said, whether they can do something doesn't necessarily mean they can't or they should. Um, because again, as a practical matter, it's I don't know that they're prepared really to hold people and provide sufficient um, habitability to large quantities of people. Uh, you know, even just those that came in off of the cruise ships, you have, you know, to come up with enough facilities to hold them and to be able to hold them where they can actually still be quarantined off from each other. And so you have situations where if they can't properly be quarantined off from each other, then they might be at greater risk being held there than to be able to uh, allow to return home and, and sort of shelter in place there. It's important to remember that most certainly at the state level and even at the federal level, the laws defining uh, the government's authority to involuntarily detain someone who hasn't committed a crime are are really focused on individuals and not groups. So yes, it might be possible to identify uh, an individual who didn't want to stay home, whether because he didn't believe the government or uh, just wanted to go out. But there, you can I, you can isolate those individual cases. That's very different and frankly easier to do than trying to enforce a large scale geographic quarantine. And that's the that's the problem with potentially these sort of large scale decisions of we're not letting anybody in from X country or we're not allowing, uh, you know, we're going to quarantine off an entire region or state or something like that. Um, It it raises a lot more constitutional uh, questions because of the ability to evaluate whether that entire group actually poses a threat to the larger public. All right. Well, I must let the two of you uh, go. But other than thinking about the health and safety of your families and where you're going to find the next roll of toilet paper and pondering why you didn't paint that wall in your house that you now stare at every day. What are you looking for? What are you monitoring, considering looking ahead for the next two, three weeks? At the moment, I'm I'm feeling that almost overwhelmed by the number of issues that this has raised. I'm now on an American Bar Association task force on legal needs arising out of the 2020 pandemic, but that encompasses everything from keeping the courts open to uh, administrative agencies that are trying to provide benefits to people who can therefore not go bankrupt 
And I'm particularly concerned about the conduct of elections, not only primaries that exist now, but ultimately elections in November. So that is at a more a more professional level of the enormous array of legal questions that exist. But again, I think most of them arise out of our slow response to the virus and our lack of equipment, protective equipment and tests. One of the things uh, I think, uh, and I, I won't speak for Wendy, but at least for myself, when we wrote that article um, in 2018 about the federal, uh, the new federal guidelines for the CDC is we, I think, were concerned, especially with Trump's comments during the Ebola outbreak of an extreme sort of extremely coercive uh, and authoritarian response if there was an outbreak. And I have been surprised, um, you know, that the response was quite the opposite, right? Just sort of acting as if it didn't exist. Um, and, and, you know, largely to, to protect uh, the economy and, and sort of keep that uh, as a, the primary focal point for um, his reelection. But now that the tone has shifted this week, one of the things that I'm curious about and, and trying to keep an eye on is whether there will be a shift to more coercive measures. And if so, who that's going to impact. A lot of times, you know, when you go more uh, with more um, heavy handed policies and laws, oftentimes it's. Um, the poor and racial minorities and people, you know, the vulnerable and the underserved that it impacts more. And so that's something that I'm trying to to keep an eye on to see if that, that shift happens. And if so, what kind of protective measures and what kind of, you know, how can we advocate and, and you know, uh, help those groups if that is ultimately what happens. Um, that and trying to figure out how to make online classes less boring for the next six weeks. And that was The Week in Health Law. You can find Professor Mariner on Twitter at Wendy Mariner. And Professor Ulrich is at Michael R. Ulrich. So thank you for a great discussion. It was great having you on the pod. Uh, show notes are at tour.com. I'm Nicholas Terry on Twitter. For years, I've been saying with some sort of jokey sense, have a legally interesting but healthy week. Uh, let me say that in all seriousness today. Have a healthy and safe week.